Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the no longer turning pages in magazines doesn't mean you should turn the page on magazines edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. You're a very embarrassed Shannon Pond because of what I just said. That was like that was like a dad joke. <laughs> Indeed. On the show today, we take a detour from the finance and economics heavy episodes of the last few weeks and into the field of media. And since I myself don't know anything about media, trust me when I say that we're all better off with Shannon taking the reins of this episode. Shannon, hello. Hi, Cardiff. Okay, so who'd you talk to and what was the topic? So first up, I talked to our colleague, Anna Nicolau about Teen Vogue. I know you are an avid reader, I'm sure. Uh, a newly avid reader, yes. <laughs> newly since the election, right? That's absolutely correct. Exactly. So we're going to talk about why Teen Vogue has suddenly become a political must-read. And then I'm joined by Troy Young, who is the president of digital at Hearst Magazines. They publish everything from Elle to Esquire to Popular Mechanics. And we're going to talk about uh, publishing magazines in print and on digital in a world where you know, a magazine is not just a magazine on paper. It is on Snapchat and uh, in other forms on your phone and in the digital ether and on TV and everywhere else. And we're going to kind of get the lowdown from him on what it means to be doing all of this uh, with a 130-year-old media brand. Lots to look forward to in this episode. Shannon, before we get to these interviews, though, I want to talk about the Pepsi ad that has generated so much controversy this week because I think this was actually serendipitous timing given the topics that you discuss in your interviews with Troy and with Anna. Why don't we first start by taking our listeners through what was actually in the ad, because we might have some listeners overseas, especially who might not have seen it. Yeah. So Pepsi put up an ad online this week that features reality star and model Kendall Jenner. She is doing a modeling shoot and a protest goes by, a, a very generic, non-specific protest goes by, and it's full of attractive, young, multicultural people. There's like an Asian guy playing the cello and a photographer wearing a hijab and, you know, all, you know, nine colors of Benetton sort of <laughs> approach to this. Kendall then you know, sees all these people marching by, happily toting signs with, you know, really incisive slogans like peace and join the conversation. Uh, she rips off the wig that she's wearing and goes and joins in on the protest. When the climactic moment is actually the end of the ad where uh, there are some police officers sort of standing alongside the protest and they're kind of like eyeing the protesters and the protesters eyeing the police officers and Kendall bravely walks up with a can of Pepsi and hands it to the police officer and he opens it and smiles and the crowd cheers and that's how it ends. Pepsi puts this online on Tuesday. It is taken offline by Wednesday uh, because it, there basically was a near immediate just utter backlash against this like mockery, but also condemnation on a lot of levels. I mean, people just felt it was really tone deaf. Uh, there was a sense that it was really trivializing, you know, the fraught uh, political climate we're in, we're trivializing the importance of protests, and particularly the protests we've seen about police violence and killings, especially of young black men. It seemed to directly reference some imagery from the Black Lives Matter movement, and then, of course, it's in this protest where you don't really have a sense of what they're protesting and, you know, the police officers are just like happy and the protesters are just happy. And it, the whole thing just hit a totally off note. You know, Pepsi, you know, after you know, less than 24 hours of a bunch of you know, tweets and general freaking out on the Internet, uh, Pepsi took down the ad, said they apologized. They had missed the mark. They were hoping to, to send a message of, of unity and inclusiveness, um, but that they didn't want – they didn't mean to uh, – trivialize serious issues. Uh, and they also apologize to Kendall Jenner for her involvement in it. So let's talk about the two things that yeah. Pepsi trivialized inadvertently uh, with this ad. 
One was the seriousness of the things that have been protested in the U.S. over the last couple of years. So think of just what the last three were, right? One was, as you mentioned, Black Lives Matter movement. Another was the uh, pro-women's march just in the aftermath of the election of Donald Trump, who, let's not forget, is somebody who once bragged about being allowed to grab women's genitalia whenever he wanted just because he's famous and who also has a lot of uh, complaints against him by, I think, almost a dozen women who say that he handled them inappropriately as well. Uh, And then most recently, you also had the demonstrations against the Muslim ban, which ended up not being enacted, right, because of the courts, which struck it down. Um, But for a while, it looked like it was going to happen. And you had, you know, really widespread protests all throughout the country, not just uh, in the major coastal cities where you might expect them. The second thing it trivialized was, how hard it's going to be to solve some of these really difficult problems in the U.S., acting right. as if these aren't super intractable problems where you had Kendall Jenner just going up to a police officer, handing him a Pepsi, right? Right. Uh, and then and he- like, everything's okay. And then everything's smiles, fine. Every, right. Everybody's partying yeah. after that. This is ridiculous. Uh, it also did lead, I think, to some highly amusing memes um, oh, yeah. <laughs> in response. I think my favorite one was- a can of Pepsi replacing the single Tiananmen Square protester in front of the tanks uh, in a Photoshop version of that iconic photo. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think sort of the context for this, like if we step back and say, okay, so what what was Pepsi trying to do? Like to slightly give them the benefit of the doubt, this execution was terrible. What were they trying to do? You know, we're in a political moment. They have a very broad base of consumers, um, but definitely like a large proportion of those consumers are young people who, you know, are politically active, who are interested in these sort of things. Companies across the board are under a lot of pressure to be more transparent about all kinds of operations, you know, everything from their supply chain to how they treat their employees, their hiring practices, to where they're advertising. Think about the, the backlash against YouTube when advertising messages were showing up on extremist videos to the content of their advertising. There's there's a real sense in corporate America and in the advertising world that consumers want to hear about brands' values. People talk about being values-led companies. They want, you know, they want to sort of have this sense of, you know, I know what you stand for. I know how you treat your employees. I know if I'm going to buy your product, I, you know, I'm supporting – I feel like I'm supporting something that that aligns with my beliefs. But of course, they're a mass brand. They are selling to people across the country. So they can't just kind of actually put up, you know, a, an ad showing like a protest about women's rights or a protest about police violence. You know, they, they have to make it as vague as possible. That's where it raises a lot of questions and doesn't hit the mark. And the idea that there is what, what can they contribute to this conversation? Oh, well, we can solve it if we could all just like share a Pepsi together. I mean, that just seems ridiculous. Do you get the sense then that essentially, uh, these things are bifurcating. And what I mean by that is that either in your advertising, if you're a big company, you have to stay completely apolitical and maybe just make jokes the way Geico does or something like that. Or if you're going to be political, you need to be extremely clear about what you're saying because if you embrace this kind of vagueness so as not to offend anybody, then you're just going to be accused, rightly so, I think, of expropriating some really serious issues for uh, some cynical purposes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We saw this around the Super Bowl. If you remember the Budweiser ad, Budweiser ran this ad, the Super Bowl this year, that was the immigration story of the founder of the company. And this came right amid all of the uproar over the Muslim ban and, and, and Trump's immigration executive order, his attempt to keep refugees out of the country and, and people from a bunch of Muslim nations. You know, Budweiser puts this ad out and everyone, you know, the, the wide reaction was, well, this is a political statement, but, you know, Budweiser's embracing immigration, you know, and they're saying, oh, no, we didn't, you know, we, this is planned well before. This isn't a statement on current events. It's about history. You know, they got a lot of blowback kind of on both sides, you know, from people on the right saying, you know, you, you're criticizing the president and people on the left saying, well, if you're going to say this, like, stand by it. For a lot of companies, it's just not worth it. It's like, you know, it's a hot wire. You're not like, why why try to do something political when you risk alienating like half the country when you're trying to sell things to half the country? I think if you are, you know, a more niche brand, maybe you can go down that path more of sort of talking about these progressive values. But it's hard. I think it's and I think I think you're right. I think we are going to see more of a bifurcation. I will also say that just because of the way that decisions get made in very large corporations, it's going to be tough to go down that political route because 
things in, invariably end up getting softened, right? Yeah. I suspect that an initial version, initial draft of this commercial probably had a much pointier tone, right? In other words, uh, it was going to be a little bit spikier, but then it started getting filtered down through the you know various hierarchies or whatever at Pepsi, and then it ended up with this version of it that ended up making the protest itself very bland, right. and that in itself turned out to be the offensive thing, right? Right. right. Yeah, so well- I don't, you know. I, I'm just purely speculating here. I don't know, but I think that is a danger for companies that go that route. They're going to ha- actually have to go all the way or don't go that route at all. Well, and I think the, the other like sort of perplexing thing that corporations have to deal with in this is that a lot of things that even a year ago we wouldn't have said were particularly politicized if you're talking about values like inclusion, diversity. I mean, these these seem to be, you know, like every company started, started talking about diversity. Suddenly that has become like a political, a politically contentious issue. It, it feels like the, the line is moving, like the goalpost is being moved a bit around, you know, where if you are saying, you know, we are, you know, we're a tolerant company that wants to, you know, hire and sell to like all kinds of people, are you going to get backlash, you know, from a subset of the population who doesn't feel that those are their values? But, you know, I don't think any reasonable person would have said that that's a particularly, you know, capital D democratic value. It seems like it's just sort of like a human value or the same thing, you know, expressing the idea of support for women's rights, you know, for women's equality has also become politicized like in our current climate. So I am somewhat sympathetic to the idea. It's it's kind of hard to walk this line. On the other hand, this seemed like a pretty obvious fail that there were multiple points along the way that could have stopped this from happening. Right. Uh, the evolution of advertising. Um, if you're going to enter a, a new arena, make sure you do it wisely. Yep. Uh, and maybe get a little bit of uh, feedback before you send it out to the mass public. Yeah. You know? yep, yep. Um, Otherwise, you get that that in social media feedback is pretty much instantaneous. All right. All very fascinating. And lots more of this to come on this episode. And to start with, here is Shannon's conversation with Anna Nicolau about Teen Vogue. Hi, Anna. Hello. So, Anna, you've been on the media beat for a few months now, and you've been doing some reporting on Teen Vogue, um, and we'll have a piece coming out in the hopefully near future, which I encourage everyone to read when it comes out. But uh, we're going to talk about Teen Vogue today, but maybe we should start by uh, explaining probably our audience is not exactly the target audience for Teen Vogue. So let's start by talking about what Teen Vogue is. Yeah. So, I mean, Teen Vogue is, I guess, the simplest description is sort of the younger sister of Vogue. So it's been the aimed skipper to Vogue's Burn. Yeah, yes, sure. So it, it's been around for a while since I think 2003. And it's, I mean, it's literally sort of supposed to be Vogue, but for a younger audience. So for teenage girls, historically, it's had a lot of, you know, fashion, celebrity news, nail art, like stuff like that. And I guess it's the reason we're talking about it now is because in the past year or so, it's gotten a lot of attention for shifting its focus towards politics. Right. So it actually sort of surprisingly during the election, just after the election, Teen Vogue became certainly among kind of the the media set that I tend to follow on Twitter, became like a a place people were talking about and reading and kind of excited in a way that's surprising for a brand, right, that had been previously more closely associated, you know, with makeup tips and, you know, relationship advice. So what what's happened here? I mean, this isn't first of all Teen Vogue isn't the only sort of younger skewing brand in media that's trying to to redefine itself in a way or maybe expand its definition of like of what it's trying to cover and why is that happening? This started, I guess, sort of in the lead up to the election last spring. They mixed up their whole structure pretty much and the previous editor left and they replaced her with these two younger editors who have sort of spearheaded this new strategy. And I think, I mean, in, during the primaries and then also a lot sort of in the, during the campaign and even as we've seen just after the election, they've kind of switched it up and they've hired new writers from Vice and Gawker and places like that and really put a focus on political news and pretty hard-hitting coverage of Trump which has been, as you know, a sort of tricky topic for all media to cover. I mean, there was an element of surprise. I think a lot of people who might not have been paying attention or don't normally read Teen Vogue were caught by surprise by them sort of railing at Trump in this way. And so that brought a lot of attention to them. I mean, you saw all over Twitter, just journalists you would never think would be discussing Teen Vogue. Mm-hmm. But likewise, I mean, they've, their readership has increased, their traffic has tripled. So in a weird way, Teen Vogue is, I can't, think of really an, another big winner in media from Trump 
that right. could really <laughs> rival Teen Vogue yeah. at this point. But I mean, it was with, when you think about the context of this, I mean, I, you know, I think the story that we've been telling for a while now um, on the media beat is that teenagers aren't reading traditional media. And it's not just they aren't reading like print magazines. They're literally not – they're not going to go to a website and read something. They're going to you know watch a video on Snapchat. They're going to sort of engage that way. And definitely we've seen young brands, um, brands that are trying to attract young audiences – glom onto these platforms. I mean, part of the what's fueled this huge interest in Snapchat, which, you know, is at this point not making any money yet, but is promising, right. you know, advertisers and everyone else that they can reach young people. So why make an investment in something that kind of feels a bit old school? If you look at Condé Nast and their portfolio. And Condé Nast is the Yes, owner. yes. Condé Nast owns Teen Vogue. Condé Nast as a whole has been having problems, as we know, sort of as a lot of, I mean, print media is just transitioning right now. Advertising is down for print newsstand sales are down. And the digital, yeah, ads. we talked about a lot of digital ads. Yeah, we talk about this as much. all day. It <laughs> costs as much, and so it's yeah. uh, it's it's hard to make a living as a right. media company these and days. Especially if you look at you know a print magazine aimed at teenagers, mm-hmm. it sounds pretty counterintuitive. So I think I mean looking at where they were a year or two ago, they would have probably seemed as kind of like one of the weakest links in the Condé Nast set of magazines. Right. So I think in in a lot of ways, I mean, they've made they've made a lot of moves. They used to have a monthly issue. Now it's down to four per year. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to sort of make the magazine this kind of big scrapbook-like thing right. that people can... I mean, that's sort of the marketing, the branding of it is that it's, it's more of like a, a yearbook or something like right. that, it's where you can sort of like, you can collect it and keep it, but you're only going to use it every three months. Right. So... The, I mean, they definitely kind of switched focus and that part of the, the new editorial structure was that they would have two people in charge, one in charge of digital and one print. They're making a conscious effort to give equal weight to both sides. Right. And then there, I mean, I know I've talked from talking to some other publishers that have, are trying to sort of do a similar thing, like in lifestyle, they're talking about kind of running at two speeds, right? Because the amount of time it takes to put together a, a print magazine, like you you kind of by definition can't be on top of the news in the same way, but they want to be able to like mostly sell advertising, but you know, they want to be able to be reaching an audience that is interested sort of in, in the day to day. And so they in some ways are starting to look a, l- a little more like news operations. I mean, which I guess makes sense if they're hiring people from Vice and, and Gawker, people who are with those sort of backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say we're going to shift and cover political news, but only quarterly, you know, right. <laughs> that's not really going to be realistic. So I think that's definitely been sort of a conscious effort as well. And I spoke with their digital editor and he was saying, I mean, a big thing for me was just sort of giving more to the website, posting stuff all the time, posting stuff on Instagram stories and on Snapchat that they post like at least 50 posts online a day. Mm-hmm. And that's really worked really well and kind of pushing hard on social media to reach these people. Mm-hmm. The traffic is up. Is there a sense that, that that there's actually been a revenue benefit from this? I think so. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, they also said that even print subscriptions had ticked up. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that given that, and I think they're at like 10 million visitors a month now. Adweek, I think, named them like the hottest brand for advertisers <laughs> right now. So given that there's also just, as you know, there's this huge focus on reaching young people from large corporations, seeing that Teen Vogue has this sort of finger on the pulse or seems to, I'm sure that advertisers are sort of lining up for them right now. But it's also kind of easy to, to point to the sort of thing to say the media is out of touch. I mean, from from the reporting that you've done, what does this tell us about actually like what the younger generation, how, how they look politically? Well, it's sort of funny because, I mean, the people that are writing for Teen Vogue and these editors, I mean, they aren't teenagers, right? They're, <laughs> they're in their 20s. What they would always say, what they've said in a lot of interviews and publicly is that I guess it's fair to be surprised that Teen Vogue is doing this, but it's not fair to be surprised that teenagers are interested in this stuff. I mean, there's tons of, you know, marketing surveys and polls just about kind of how young people feel about a lot of social issues now. And it sort of resoundingly seems like they're much more open and diverse and have a leaning towards more progressive values. So I think the success of Teen Vogue is certainly sort of a a benchmark for how teenagers seem to feel in, in the U.S. these days and sort of this highly politicized culture, I think it's clear that there is certainly an interest, at least from a large group of them in, in politics. And well, I think that's also interesting then to see that advertisers following that. You know, one of the things that we've been covering in the past couple of months is is 
the social media backlash, the the general media backlash we've seen when advertisers are are taking stands that have become or or seen to be taking stands that are are politicized, you know, brands these days talk a lot about their brand values. They talk a lot about diversity, about treating their employees well. And these are from the reporting that I've done, the, the people that I've talked to, you know, this is driven both because they want to attract like a, a new generation of workers who who value these things. And also they think it's appealing to a lot of their customers who, you know, as politically divided as the country is, there are a lot of people who do subscribe to those values. And so to see them like looking forward, like this is the next generation of buyers, right, of, of shoppers who are going to have a lot of spending power. And so it would make sense that they want to kind of come in and, and fund these sort of things and reach these people. I think brands and companies, for them, teenagers are always sort of this shiny object. Everyone's sort of trying to figure out how do we get to them and make an interesting Instagram story or whatever. So this is clearly something that's worked for Teen Vogue. But you're right. I mean, it's it's very tricky right now, just given the political climate, for any company to figure out where and when to take a stand. And just given the nature of social media and how quickly things spread right now. You, I mean, we've seen with Uber and a lot of other companies that you're, there's this accountability that wasn't really there before. I mean, for companies like Teen Vogue, they know that their audience is, a, or their target audience is a certain group of people that I guess they viewed as more amenable to taking these progressive values. Whereas other companies that maybe have like a larger, older audience in different places in the country might feel differently. Yeah. So the divide only widens. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Anna, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. And that's the end of Shannon's chat with uh, Anna Nicolau. Shannon, before we get to your chat with uh, Troy, I want to mention that something a lot of people outside the journalism field may not know is that it's a hidden source of shame for a lot of us that the lifestyle brands attached to our hard news organizations, right, actually generate a lot of the revenues that like cross-subsidize, <laughs> right, that make it possible for us to work at these places. The FT has a magazine called How to Spend It that sells a ton of money against its like luxury ads. Yep. But the New York Times and a bunch of other places have similar features as yep. well. The Times has T-Magazine. Um, the Wall Street Journal has sort of expanded and contracted in these areas, but they have a very uh, lucrative section called Mansion that's focused on on high-end real estate. Yeah, I mean, the idea of all of these things is they can attract the watch manufacturers and yacht sellers of the world. And sadly, people are willing to pay a lot more for that kind of content than they are for our reporting. I can't imagine why. Yeah, something I got uh, from your chat with Anna is that Politics has become a seemingly inescapable part of our lives now, right? More so than it used to be. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But the infil- Donald Trump could be <laughs> but, single reason. But the, but yes. the infiltration of politics into the parts of our lives that maybe in the past would have been like escape valves from right. the more serious uh, things we do uh, now seems to be uh, like a mixed domain. Right. Well, I mean, it's I mean, it's in entertainment. It's in the products you buy. I mean, I think even in this well predates Trump. But, you know, I think about think about what happened when Sony got hacked, right? The Sony got packed uh, or it was putting out a movie about North Korea, a satirical film, you know, about North Korea. And like it suddenly became like a political statement whether or not theaters were going to show this film. You know, I think it, it, it is kind of across the board, you know, whether you are Starbucks and putting, you know, they've put political or seemingly political messages on their cups and the CEO of Starbucks has talked about potentially running for office one day. There's all these ways in which parts of our lives that never that used to be immune from politics have definitely taken on that tinge. Okay. Here is Shannon's interview with Troy Young, head of digital at Hearst. Hi, Trey. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you head up digital for Hearst Magazines, mm-hmm. everything from Cosmopolitan to Good Housekeeping, Esquire, L, Popular Mechanics. Mm-hmm. And Hearst is a company that's been around for 130 years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the media world of today is quite different uh, from the, the days of William Randolph Hearst. Maybe just like start off, sort of what does your job entail today and what does it say about sort of what a, a magazine company is in 2017? Well, it's certainly being reinvented, and it's being reinvented because, you know, the substrate of the magazine business or any media business is distribution. 
and distribution is changing so radically. And so, you know, with that as a backdrop, I think that, I think it's hard for any company to change. I think it's particularly hard for companies that have been around a long time that have very, you know, uh, structured modes of content creation, monetization for them to think differently about. Right, so the, the long history of like we're printing a magazine and literally shipping it out. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I've learned and I've seen it, you know, live inside of many businesses and certainly our businesses around the world is, you know, the the distribution system, the frequency, the mode of content creation and monetization of, of magazines created a a structure and a type of, you know, an expectation with, with talent employees that, uh, in many ways wasn't well suited to, to the digital mode of, of content creation distribution. So I think that, you know, these traditional media businesses really struggled at first to figure out what that meant. And when, you know, the first interpretation of it was, well, we'll move the product to digital distribution, you know, sort of same approach to advertising and content, and we'll try to monetize it as an e-edition, which right, was sort a of big, like the iPad version right. of, of and, your magazine. And then the web was seen as a way to get subscriptions or as a, you know, a secondary location for magazine content. And, you know, I think those were all, you know, important first gestures in the evolution of these businesses. But really, it's a completely different business now. And we made a bold step. And Hearst is a company that's reflected in the architecture. It's a company of reinvention. And, you know, there's many, many, many examples across the 350 plus businesses that Hearst owns that or, or partners in that, you know, the company is continually looking how it maps the changes in the media landscape and continues to invest and grow um, so that it'll be around in the future. And I think what my role represents in the company is as a you know, someone who can both respect the tradition and history of the brands and the legacy of the organization, but really accelerate change uh, in digital. So the part of Hearst that you run is it's in many ways not entirely different from a lot of the purely digital companies that, that get a lot of attention, that have gotten big valuations, mm -hmm. places like BuzzFeed and Vox and Vice Media, sure. some of which uh, Hearst itself is invested in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about the, the advantages, but also the disadvantages of, of doing that, but as part of a, a big legacy company, you know, with this history, this this rooting in well, print? Well, you know, I mean, certainly the, the disadvantages at first were were pretty simple. They were... A, the structure of the magazine business prevented us from getting scale across our portfolio of brands because every different title was a sort of self-contained business of sorts. So mm -hmm. I think at first they all had different platforms, different ad strategies, different content strategies, and there, were, there, there was no way of sort of realizing the scale economics across the brands. And then I think the other part is, is that digital was essentially – you know, supportive of the need to preserve the old. Right. And so we didn't kind of abandon the orthodoxies of, you know, of the business early enough. And, and it wasn't until we really separated them that we were able to sort of accelerate our growth in, in every dimension, audience, profit, revenue, et cetera. So to be clear, you are running digital, which is essentially completely separate from the, the Yeah, I mean, the I think magazines. there's still connections, you know, because we share brands. But obviously the, the advantage that we have is that the brands are well known and it's really, really difficult to, meet, to create a, a media brand. And I think we're actually in an era uh, where brands are, are really important because if – you know, in a time of distribution confusion and fragmentation, the kind of uh, clarity of a brand to help a consumer understand what that stream of content is, is, mm -hmm. is important. How has that played out when you talk about, you know, sort of moving from this idea of these more siloed, you know, businesses within the business? I mean, for an example, you know, how are you selling advertising differently now with the way you're operating oh, than I mean, you would have been? remarkably different on every dimension. So first of all, the ad offering is entirely consistent across the portfolio. And, you know, every on the, on the small side, every aspect of how we, you know, create, manage traffic, a campaign is the same. The content studio that works with advertisers to create these ambitious content programs that we create is consistent across our organization. Um, we manage all of our inventory holistically across the organization. We have a way, 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 way more editorial collaboration across brands. That isn't that the, the editors on the brands are still really focused on bringing those, you know, clarity to the lens that is the brand, but they work, they share data, they share stories, they, 
share uh, scoops. Uh, you know, we, we try to be intelligent about how we collaborate so that we can essentially make a couple hundred editors, you know, work more efficiently. But the, the, and the other piece is obviously platform. And, and what I mean by platform is the ability to sort of create, package, analyze content across, you know, any content type across a myriad of distribution points, which is really, really complicated. And, you know, even 15, 20 years into the sort of digital change process in, in media, you know, media companies, big media companies just still really struggle with, with technology. Right. And so we built, you know, a technology culture and a way of creating, you know, and managing content and do, and we're doing that and kind of rendering that vision in, across the world. So you remember that, you know, the history of magazines is a little bit like a franchise business in a way where you would set up a a publication in Italy or in Spain or in China and you would give them the ingredients and they'd create the publication. And today we have to manage our investment across those in a very different way. So creating a singular multilingual platform with consolidated kind of view on the content around the world where you report in London in the morning on Cosmo and we get the advantage of that in New York, you know, six hours later is a huge advantage if you think about that that kind of pool of content, you know, writ or, you know, and, and that practice around the world. I mean, we've certainly seen, you know, news organizations, you know, like the FT, like CNN operating that model, but it sounds like you're saying it, it still applies in, in lifestyle and in, in Yeah, but I mean, you know, that was, you know, something that, that a lot of people ask questions about. And and I think that, you know, maybe at the risk of getting slightly conceptual about it, distribution always profoundly changes the nature of content. Mm -hmm. And when you think about this change that we've gone through from sort of months to moments from, you know, authoritative and, and distant to personal and intimate and the kinds of things, you know, the way that our distribution system has changed the way editors have worked, it it has pulled us by necessity into the news business. Now, that doesn't mean that we compete with the Financial Times, but we need to find pegs every day to create content because right. we're in a conversation with people all the time. And so we are, we are more of a news organization. Now, one place where I disagree with what some people assert, you know, about the kind of recent, you know, observation that these lifestyle, women's lifestyle publications, you know, trade in you know, harder news more than they, they, they used to. Right. Perhaps. So for, for the, like, like during the election, we saw right. like Teen Vogue got a lot of attention for their political coverage. Right. Well, as not just Teen Vogue. I would have to Cosmo say we, we do tons. And, I mean, yeah. Cosmo did a lot of really important mm -hmm. reporting. So did Elle, mm -hmm. you know, so did Mary Claire, many of our publications. Esquire was in it, you know, mm -hmm. hugely. The thing I would, would say there is that there has always been those kinds of features in magazines. I just think that now it's more visible and mm -hmm. it's a more important part of where we invest editorially. Well, and, and if you are publishing sort of in that, that moment, you know, on the daily, on a daily schedule, you can be more relevant where right. you're not waiting right till next month for the feature to come out. Yeah. So how has that changed what the magazines themselves, like the print magazines are doing? I mean, I don't think that it's changed the print magazines much. I, like I said, I think that that if you look at a publication like Elle, it still has a, a kind of ambitious, you know, editorial remit mm -hmm. and outside of fashion and beauty to the issues that really matter to women. So so they, they do what they did, you know, and I think that the most important way to manage change in an organization is to free people up to do what, you know, that medium and that reader and that audience, you know, demands of them and that competitive set, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that I ever want with our, with you know, with our teams is that, our editorial teams can be the best that they can possibly be, that we're hiring and incenting the amazing talent to create content unencumbered by anything else. That's like, how do we be the best and how do we compete with, with uh, you know, any pure play? Because basically everything that we do every day is identical. Mm -hmm. So to your point about, about distribution having changed, I mean, for every media outlet, we've seen how, how social media platforms have become such an important way um, for readers to, to and viewers to reach our stories, um, or to distribute things mm -hmm. like video, sort of things that a traditionally print publication might not have had to worry about right. before. Of course, that relationship, especially with you know companies like Facebook, is also very fraught. From your point of view, what is the future of of your magazine brands in this age of distributed content? How do you think about balancing? That? I mean, that's a huge question. I mean, and, and <laughs> I, I, I got to figure out ways to come in at that. But the one thing I was thinking about this morning actually is. 
there are so many more ways in to our publications today than there ever have been. So if you think historically, you might have read Esquire or L on the newsstand, or you perhaps were a subscriber, and there was lots of them, but not nearly as many as we touch today. And if you think about where we're visible today across Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram and Microsoft and like many, many distribution points, uh, you know, our brands are more accessible and more read than ever, like by far. So that's the good part of it. I think that the whole industry, certainly both on video and on the sort of flat content side, has struggled to maintain the the levels of monetization per user that we used to have right. in and the magazine sort of that direct world. relationship with the right. The I mean, ma- magazines were a great, you know, well understood form of uh, of advertising for a long time. They gave very rich, powerful context to certain types of brands. So today, listen, every platform, every distribution point offers two things, right? They offer audience and money. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a long time, there was a promise of audience and, you know, you'll figure out how to make money. And I think that that pact was perhaps manageable when the distribution points were a reliable source of traffic to a place that you could gainfully monetize, right? So, so when you it was gave pointing them, to your website. You gave them content, <laughs> they give you clicks. And that mm-hmm. happened forever in this business from, you know, the earliest times of headline syndication to MSN and to Yahoo and to AOL. And I think as the market shifted, what happened, and, and video was an important part of this because the video, you know, experience by necessity almost always lives where the distributor is, like mm-hmm. the player lives there. There. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in content with things like AMP and instant articles, increasingly the entirety of the content experience lived at the distribution point. Right. right? right. Because and, Google and Facebook. Right. And then so there. what I say there is, you know, distribution's great, but I can't take it to the bank. So I want money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that what you're seeing broadly, and, and this is because of you know some of the competitive activities in the platform market like the the the, the young challenger that is snapchat mm-hmm. what we've seen is more competition for content and more competition for great premium content mm-hmm. and and it to me the the math is really simple what's happening is that social media is becoming more alike right so a lot of it is a communication platform that is a stream of video that connects you to your community and to your friends and mm-hmm. there are varying ways that that you know that 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 sort of social architecture works in different environments but like if you look at Messenger, it starts to look a little bit more like Snapchat and Twitter's becoming just like a feed of video. And right. so they're all starting to look the same. And content is becoming a really important differentiator because content always differentiates because you make it new every day. Mm-hmm. And so the companies and the platforms that create the best environment for connecting communication and content and rewarding content creators to be in there and to create great content for those audience packaged in a way that makes sense to that environment will do better. Because over the long run, what you're going to see is these platforms won't just be content distribution. If you look at the next generation of of like you know, distribution environments, whether it's Amazon Prime, Mm -hmm. which offers you a whole bundle of services, which you probably know you order stuff to your house and all of that. Plus, and you get get content, (laughs) right? Or Snapchat, which offers you a great way to communicate with your friends and do self-expression and all of that plus content. And, you know, Twitter Mm -hmm. offers, you know, similar things. That those are the environments that create daily habit, that bring users in every day, and that will be natural distribution places for content. Now, what we're seeing from all of those companies is more willingness to create a better tools for content companies and to, to, to share revenue in a more meaningful way. So I'm actually really happy with where we are. Now, I'm not saying it's easy because like, so for example, on Snapchat, we'll have seven brands on Snapchat. And if you just think about what's happening there, right? Like we create 14 Snap stories a day on Cosmo times seven a week, right? That's a lot of content in addition to everything they're doing to service Facebook, to service Instagram, to service Pinterest, to service the dot right, com. Everything is slightly different. Right. So those poor editors are like making more and more and more content. And so, you know, I think the way we handle all of that is we try to make the content right for the environment. I think that what I really push the team on until they get sort of tired of me hearing it is, you know, it's like a, mo- it's, I call it modern windowing, right? Like how do we keep 
using our content in smart ways to create great experiences across all the dis distribution points, but how do we creep sanity around the economics of mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. But the real thing is at the end of the day, all of that matters to me, but not to the user or to right. the audience. We have to keep quality up. Right. And that's, that's what's really important. So I, I think what, what we're going to see in the next few years is, you know, if today our primary, you know, monetization system involves you know, highly service-oriented, direct-sold product to advertisers like to a L'Oreal or to Procter & Gamble, et cetera, or to a car company. And then programmatic revenue from participating in that kind of automated exchange, whether it's direct-sold or in an open market. Right, where advertisers can buy into buy your, your audience, easily, right? Yeah. We're selling audience at that point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, increasingly we're getting more money from these distribution points, right? So there's a third sort of stream of revenue. And listen, there's others. Some people, you know, dabble in, in, in paid content. Some have commerce strategies, mm -hmm. et cetera. But what's, what's good about where we are now is that publishers are starting to see, A, that demand for their brands right. in the distribution environments and more money coming in to pay for what I described earlier, which is sort of modern – complexity of being an editor. But one of the I mean, what, so what are the complaints you hear about you know from from the publisher side about working with the distributors is yes they you are getting some money here so maybe you're getting some money from Snapchat to produce stuff on Discover maybe you're getting money from Facebook to participate in Facebook Live so then you you're sort of orienting your priorities as a cr content creator to fill those needs and then Tomorrow, Facebook decides, actually, we don't want to do this. We're going to go in a different direction. We decided we really want to go for scripted content instead of live. And that, you know, how do you, how do you think about, like, how much are you adapting yourselves to what they want versus pushing back to them saying this needs to be something? If I'm going to invest in creating a team of editors to create this content, I need to feel like you're in it for the long run. Right. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> wah. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. No, I mean, listen, we have to be endlessly flexible right. and enterprising, but, and I think we've, we've completely changed the expectation of our teams and editors to be really, really nimble. Mm -hmm. I actually think that that's why platform becomes really important because the way that you manage can't be like crazy. Like, I mean, you have to have a repository for content and lots of metadata and analytic system and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think stability evolves over time. And I think, listen, there's, it's not without precedent, right? I mean, all of this stuff, if you become a sort of student of media history, all of it existed before. The tension between distribution and content is not new, right? right? Two companies have to come together to create a single product for a consumer. Like that, that's media. And I think that there are a lot of content companies that make content, for example, for the cable networks that are subject to a buyer, the cable network, and a platform, which is, you know, the distributions, the cable distribution system. Right. So, you know, you probably say, well, yeah, but that doesn't change. And that's because it's a much more mature system, right? So I think we're in the middle right now of a pretty crazy, crazy time of but restructuring. You could, but you could see these these platforms maturing to, sort of to that point to where it becomes more similar think, to that? I think all systems mature. I mean, yeah, if I think if you look at it broadly, yeah, for sure. I think through the process of the you know the maturity, everybody's wrestling for you know economic gain. Yeah. So on Snapchat, I mean, in addition to the the brands you have on there, you have a brand that you created for Snapchat or with Snapchat specifically. Sweet. Yeah. What have you What have you guys learned about about doing well? I that love as, I that's different than you know taking Cosmo and creating content for Snapchat. so much tons, and it, it it's doing exactly what we wanted it to do. So. The sweet opportunity was, hey, there's a sort of there's a, a a a opportunity inside of a new distribution system to create a brand for young people. Mm -hmm. Do you want to do that? When we had Cosmo on there originally, we thought, oh my god, this is a really really powerful new distribution point. Should we create another one? And and the the, the initial premise uh, on the sweet brand was that we would focus on market, so it would be cool market oriented editorial strategy for young people. That it would it would be sort of both male and female, but tilt female, and that you know it would be a wonderful opportunity to work very closely with Snapchat on their platform and and really understand the dynamics of that platform and that we've succeeded in doing that. So today, Sweet has a million readers a day, which by any measure is really really significant. Listen, I mean their platform is evolving very quickly. When we started, it was a little round circle with brands on it that gave you no indication of what content was under there. And that was not nearly as competitive mm -hmm. from a kind of established brand perspective. And so we've, we're evolving it and we're committed to evolving it. We'll keep doing that. 
that. And part of it is, you know, it's given us exposure to the dynamics of that distribution environment. And now we have like, you know, seven brands on there. Mm -hmm. So I, I love doing that. We'll do that all day long. So a, a big part of your job is figuring out how, as you say, how to monetize all this, how to make money from all of this. You know, there's been the the uproar in, in Europe over digital advertising has been around YouTube and advertisers pulling their content from YouTube. Um, they're spending from YouTube because of concerns over their ads appearing next to extremist content. And But even before sort of this last round, you know, we've been hearing some complaints from big brands in the U.S. like Procter & Gamble about the digital advertising market, about sort of how fragmented and non-transparent it is. For a publisher, I imagine this could create an opportunity for you. I mean, what I mean is you got to love it if you're an established publisher with great brands and right. a history of good business practices. So, yeah. so, yeah. so, what have how have you reacted to this? Is it something that you're able to talk, go in and talk to brands about? We always talk to brands about mm -hmm. this. I mean, you know, we're incredibly transparent about how we operate. We love that we're creating a safe, well lit place for brands, and to me, that just moves moves the pendulum in in our direction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I like that. But I, I thought where you were going with that question is a question around sort of native versus other advertising well, I was types. Gonna, I was going to get to that next, which is you – know, Why don't I just ask myself questions? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I, mean, I mean, I think related to that, you know, when I, when I think about these things is that there are, you know, whether it's from the, the advertiser side or from the publisher side – this is it's a model that's still maturing, right? Figuring, figuring out what works in digital advertising, right. uh, what's sustainable, what's scalable, right. how you make a model that's really going to last. And we've seen some fairly high profile, you know, sort of implosions around a digital advertising model. So first of all, like, it, do do you feel like there is a sustainable dis digital advertising model? Yes. And then is it branded content or is it beyond branded content? I think it's mixed. Okay. Listen, I I, I don't I want to just kind of try to shatter any misconceptions around native or branded content. I don't think the 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 industry does it out of some weird benevolence. I think that it kind of <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean I think that the industry was in was on the hunt for something that felt native to the medium, right. right? Like a page of advertising in a magazine feels native to that environment and it works and it's a linear, you know, consumption mode and it makes a lot of sense. You know, the the great to me, there's, you know, the great tragedy of the invention of the banner, which, by the way, I think has actually come to a very good place, is that the banner forced humans to do something that they don't do very well, which is do two things at once. Mm -hmm. Typically, we had a banner on a desktop on the right hand side, content on the left, and we, you know, we forced a consumer to, to, to kind of do these two things at once. And I think that's really difficult to do. As opposed to flipping through a magazine, here's the ad, I turn the page, right, here's the article. Right. And and we did native. I mean, the real, you know, part of the native thing was how do we make the ad experience for, feel more native to the environment? What is the environment? It's text and pictures and hyperlinks and, you know, could could we make that work, right? Because what's native to, to, to a video model is a linear advertisement, right? right. So – I think that was good pressure on the system. I also think that the native thing or the branded content thing was because many publishers were faced with a situation where they had all these new distribution points and the ad opportunities across them were uneven. Right. So just making it all content made a lot of sense. So I can manage my distribution across YouTube and you know and and Instagram and any anywhere Facebook if I just created content that would be distributed across all of us. So those two things together in this kind of sort of veneer of like a higher purpose in advertising said we were going to make content that was great for consumers. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you're still selling someone something to someone. So I think net net what happened is this: the industry rallied around that idea, made a better ad experience online by creating something that worked for consumers first. For too long, we put the consumer between a content model and an ad model that were hostile to each other on the internet. Now, I think the great thing about good display advertising, which is think about a page, the advertising breaks the page, it's just a canvas, um, and it's a big environment to tell, uh, you know, to, to tell a beautiful story. I, I think that a beautiful story. I mean, listen, it's it's an environment to be creative. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that you works. Still do that well. I think that works well. And the great thing about display advertising is you can do targeting and you can manage frequency and you can do all those things that advertisers want that make the market more efficient. You can target them, all of that. That's a lot harder to do with native. Mm -hmm. And when people try to do that with native or do ad networks with native and all of that, they end up putting like putting a bunch of content into a little box and right. it's really hard to do. <laughs> so I think that we work, particularly in the categories we work, like on a site like Delish, 
we can make content for a packaged goods company that is a recipe ingredient beautifully. That makes tons of sense as a branded content native kind of execution. Mm -hmm. And so we should do that a lot. But I still think that systematic advertising, right, whether that's display or some type of, you know, interruptive, uh, uh, you know, execution in video, I think it's going to make sense for a long time because it's really scalable and it gets between the user and content. And then I think that users will make decisions as to whether they want to pay to get rid of that, yeah. right? And and that, that'll, that'll keep going on. Will there be opportunities? I mean, will you start in the future see presenting that opportunity to say you can you can pay to not see the ads on here if you're if if you're the type of person who might want to use an ad blocker? Yeah, I I think that that will happen. Mm -hmm. I think that there has to be very little friction for that to be effective. I think that the experiments in like the Netherlands where everybody in the country like decided that they were going to all pay for content and there was a mechanism that would make, you know, made that easy. Like, so could you imagine a world where Prime offered you access to ad-free content and there's very little friction there and that was a nice benefit of that product? Yes. I think that in the, most of the categories that we live in, in the, in, in the, in the magazine business, I think what we've seen for the most part is the market is willing to provide those categories of content for free for that in an ad supported structure. So trying to kind of swim against the current there and say, you know, pay for this because it's better or it's, you know, you know, it's, it, there's some dimension of it that feels premium, I think is really, really difficult. And that's mm -hmm. not where we're taking the business right now. Mm -hmm. I think that in, in categories of local content, highly differentiated content, like local newspapers or, you know, you know, business verticals, et cetera. Yeah. We, it makes a lot of sense to charge, mm -hmm. you know, so I, you know, it has to suit, suit the, the media type. Right. As, as does do all of these monetization yeah. strategies effectively. But right now, I mean, listen, we're growing at 30 plus percent a year by doing what we're doing. And and I, I think that, you know, scale and, and, and creating efficient solutions for advertisers across what we're doing today is the right thing mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a big part of the, I mean, you mentioned it in terms of, of native, but just in general, a big part of this is, is strategies in video. I mean, we see every publisher now going very heavily into video right. to the point where it seems like a lot of places that maybe we used to think of as as print outlets of one form or another text outlets right. um, seem to be, you know, the majority video. How do you think about it? Is there a cap sort of on the amount of, of video content people are willing to consume? Is there going to be – is there too much? I used to think about that a lot like, oh my god, we're going to stop reading and all of a sudden we're just going to consume video and feeds all day long. Now I think it's entirely conceivable that much more of our experience will be this weird modern mix of mm -hmm. text, pictures, animations, and video that we don't really have a name for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like the whole world became a CD-ROM. You know, <laughs> but like what we do every day is we, you know, we're all – the funny thing is we're all on the wire, meaning we all can produce any type of content. And we, you know, we make 500 pieces of content a day and it varies from deep reported features to, you know, how to make uh, bacon lasagna. And some of those are really great for video. <laughs> <laughs> and well – so why do people like video? I mean, do we all again, is it we are we all creating tons of video because we like it? I mean, it's it it is a or because <laughs> advertisers are willing to pay a lot more money to advertise in it. Well, I think the reason we're doing it is because there's a you know, maybe consumers like it, mm -hmm. but I think it's a far better carrier of ad messages and I think that the hope is that the path to premium and to premium both in terms of premium CPMs and ultimately paid content is video. And so you're going to see the feeds of all of these companies move from being, you know, there's a great story, by the way, it just reminded me, we had the gentleman Gabriel, whose name I can't remember, uh, who wrote the that great New York Times innovation story in Wired Magazine last month. Gabriel Snyder. Yeah, he came by and was talking about what he learned there. And he told this great story about the New York Times actually inventing the fax machine. And at the time, the AP had created a way to send an image over the wire and they wanted to compete in the New York Times and they came up with this box that could move a picture from one market to another. They went to San Francisco and they tried it out and they sort of invented the fax machine. What was amazing at the time is all the editors reacted really negatively because they thought that the publication would be taken over by photos and that it would impact the, you know, the written word. And 
you know, that's happening now with video. So the transition to video in our editorial teams is a very, very difficult thing. And it's not just the edit- editors. You need space. You need studios. You need, you know, everything that you need to make video, okay. right? Places to store equipment and makeup and costumes and all that. But I do think what will happen is it will just become a bigger part of our creative vocabulary that half of our feeds will be short form video that in some cases we'll take our brands to long form entertainment, be it scripted or other. And I think that's hard. And there's a lot. I always remind our teams that it's not like, excuse me, the world is waiting for us to make long form content. Like there is a lot of really extremely smart and talented people making long form content for cable networks and others. I mean, this is the most successful media ecosystem of all time, the cable networks. And so if we're going to make long form TV, which we're working on, you know, we're going to have to be really enterprising. But I do think that there's this world that we're moving into that, again, we don't have a name for it. And it is all of these new distribution points for communications and content on the internet. And when you arrive there, you'll see our brands and the experiences that you'll have will be you know, text pictures and video and everything in between. And we are, as a company, becoming really adept at living in that world. Troy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And that's the end of the interview portion of today's show. But Shannon, it's time for our long-form recommendations. What should our listeners be watching or reading or listening to. I haven't done this in a while. I'm going to recommend Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, um, which is a novel that recently came out. So I just want to back up. I have a general rule now that I have become a parent where I can't consume any media where like bad things happen to anybody, but particularly children. And this book totally breaks that from the very beginning. It is about the death of Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie. That said... Don't know why. Knowing that, I picked it up anyway. It's a fantastic book. It's told in this kind of really bizarre sort of chorus effect where literally you're basically being told the story by multiple different voices, often from sentence to sentence. And it was just like captivating and mesmerizing and really beautiful and despite the theme, actually really heartwarming about loss and love and appreciating life. So I recommend it. I'm going to add an attendant recommendation to your long-form recommendation, which is George Saunders's article in The Guardian about the process of writing this book. It's a beautiful meditation on how writing actually is very much an extension of who you are, but that's not enough. You have to actually put in a ton of work. You have to iterate, and it's a very difficult process. And it's also uh, an article about what it means to go from writing nonfiction to fiction, which is what Saunders is traditionally known for is his long-form journalism work. So, uh, yeah, great article. Recommend it. And what do you have to recommend today? Uh, I am recommending not a particular uh, film or book. I'm recommending a streaming service. It's called Filmstruck. It's brought to you by the people who run the Criterion Collection of Classic Movies and the people who run Turner Classic Movies. Yep. And it is amazing. It is a film uh, nerd's dream. It is a film nerd's dream. It's, <laughs> it's a classic great. film nerd's stuff. dream. All of the classic movies, not all of them, but many of them have really wonderful special features attached to them. My favorite movie, Chimes at Midnight, is on there, but they also have a special going right now looking at Japanese cinema. So there's movies by Ozu and Kurosawa. It's just, I, I just got it and I'm sort of, uh, I look forward to like going home and eagerly powering my th- way, my way through it. So it's it's really incredible. I recommend it. It's a hundred bucks a year. So totally worth it. You know. And my my addendum to that is that the Criterion Collections special features are amazing. Anyone who has the DVDs knows this. And to have a place where you actually can get all of that all together, amazing. Yes. And by the way, I want to recognize here that this sounds like a host read ad. It isn't. I just love Filmstruck that much. This is a genuine recommendation. Alpha Chat is not being paid anything by the people who run Filmstruck. It's just awesome. And that also applies to every long-form recommendation we've ever made here, by the way. I should remind everybody about that. These are things that we have come across and that we really like and that we think our listeners should be paying attention to. That is all for today's show. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. 
or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code for those of our listeners overseas because Shannon and Amy and I are in the U.S. Please rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find out about, about us. I'm not making that up. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Shannon, you're on Twitter where? At Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And you can get show notes to this and all of our previous episodes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. And finally, Shannon, I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you do the the effusive praise for Amy this time. This is gonna be my mom joke. Yes. I did the dad joke to start the show. You do the mom joke to finish. All right. Amy Keene is our Teen Vogue cover star this week, and she is the producer and editor and guiding light of the show. Indeed. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.